Hello, fellow teachers and students of the scriptures, and welcome to Teaching with Power. I'm Ben Wilcox, and this week we're going to be studying Matthew chapters 9 through 10, Mark 5, and Luke 9. As always, I want to thank you for joining me. I'm so grateful for all of you that take the time to come together with me each week to deepen your understanding of the scriptures. To help you find relevance and personal meaning in the scriptures is always my goal. So if you're ready, grab your scriptures and your marking pencils. It's time to dig deep. And as with most weeks, I struggle to decide which stories to cover and which ones to leave behind for another time. And this week was particularly tough, as there are quite a few really great stories and unique teachings of the Savior uh, in the block this week. So forgive me if I decided not to cover one of your favorite parts. But the three stories that I decided to focus on are the healing of Legion, the healing of the woman with the issue of blood, and Jesus' instructions to his apostles as he sends them out into the world to preach the gospel. So let's take a look at each of those stories in turn. And first, Legion. And for this story, I'll often introduce it with a magic trick. It does require a little bit of an upfront cost if you want to start the lesson this way. But I do guarantee it is effective. And what happens is this. You hand somebody two coins. One is a silver half dollar, and the other is a copper English penny. And the two coins clearly look different in both color and size. Now you hand them the coins, and you ask them to put their hands behind their back and place one coin in each hand. And after they've done this, you ask them to bring both hands back out in front with their fists closed. Now you challenge them by saying that you bet that they won't be able to give you back the penny. And usually they feel pretty confident that they can. And so you ask them to try. And when they open their hand, they'll discover that they're no longer holding a copper penny, but an American quarter instead. The copper English penny has been transformed into a completely different coin. And then they'll usually quickly check the other hand and they'll discover that it's still the half dollar. It's a really powerful effect and the trick doesn't require really any sleight of hand and is is fairly simple to do with just a little bit of practice. But it does require a special set of coins to make it work. So if you're interested, I'll provide you with a link in the video description below where you could purchase this trick on Amazon if you like. It's called the Scotch and Soda trick, by the way. Um, Don't ask me why, I'm not sure. But the link that I've given you is a little bit of a more expensive set. And that's just because uh, I know that the quality will be good. There are less expensive sets uh, available out there as well. Um, I just can't guarantee they look uh, real. Um, sometimes the coins, you, you can tell that they're, they're gimmicked coins. But anyway, uh, I'll also provide you with a link to a video that explains how the trick works and, and teaches you how to do it. Now, the point that you could make here, though, is that the coin changed. It was transformed into something else. And the story from the New Testament that we're going to take a look at today is about a man whose life was completely transformed by the power of the Savior. We're going to see him change dramatically by the end of the story. 
And we know this man by the name of Legion. But I'm sure that that wasn't his real name. In fact, if I get a chance to meet him in the next life, I'd like to know what his real name was. Because I'm certain that he'd want us to call him by that name. By his real name. His real identity. So to help you study and understand the story of Legion, I have a secret phrase activity that that you could do. And if you decide that you don't want to do the magic trick to introduce the lesson, you could always just go straight to the handout activity if you like. But here are the answers. The man had his dwelling amongst the tombs. And what an interesting place for him to hang out amongst the dead. Because of almost all the people that Jesus meets in the New Testament, this man seems to be the most spiritually lifeless person that he encounters. This man is so far gone that he's lost all control of his spirit and body. It's almost as if the real man inside Legion has been destroyed, and the evil spirits within him have complete power. He couldn't be bound, not even with chains. And neither could any man tame him. Nobody was able to pacify or help this man or protect him from himself. Anybody in the village that had tried was unsuccessful. He would cut himself with stones. The unclean spirits within him would cause him to hurt himself. When Jesus meets him, he cries out, Torment me not. It's interesting that the devils within Legion know exactly who Christ is, as I'm sure they have a bright recollection of his divinity and power from the pre-mortal world. These evil spirits didn't want to lose their power over this body that they now inhabited. And the man said his name was Legion, for we are many. Ooh, what, what a scary thing to hear him say. Chills would have gone down my back. There was not just one unclean spirit within him, but many. And the legion of devils within the man pleaded to be cast into a herd of swine. Now, why would they do that? We also know from premortality that those who rebelled against the Father forfeited their chance to gain a body. Those spirits were then cast out of heaven and sent here to earth without bodies. And what are they doing here? They're tempting and enticing people to do what's wrong. They are the servants of Satan. And yes, in some rare cases, they may even be able to take residence inside a body. Now, I'd be careful. I wouldn't want this lesson to turn into a big discussion about the nature of evil spirits. But a student might ask a question about their nature. I would make the point that we don't really need to be frightened or worried much by this. Evil spirits don't have the power or the agency to just take over people's lives. We don't need to be afraid of things under the bed or walking alone in the dark. That's not what we're talking about here. If we had a little more detail about Legion's past life, 
we'd probably discovered that through poor choices and a fascination with the powers of evil, he had allowed this influence to come into his life. He had invited it somehow and had eventually lost control. And as long as we don't go into that kind of an extreme, I don't think we need to worry about that. The evil spirits that we really need to worry about are the ones that are tempting us and enticing us to get angry, to feel hatred, to give in to our lusts, or to be dishonest. Those are the evil spirits that we really need to be worried about. The swine in the story ran violently down a steep place into the sea. And I know it's so sad, those poor little piggies. Uh, It doesn't seem fair, right? But this detail does contain an interesting principle to me. Maybe the pigs teach us a little bit of a lesson. They could tell that something wasn't quite right. So what did they do? They ran. They tried to get away from it. And we too should run from evil. Now, sadly, in the story, it doesn't turn out well for them. But they tried. They tried to get away. And if we ever feel that evil is starting to take control, I pray that we will run. But, but that we'll run to those that can help us. Run to our families, our friends, our church leaders, and most importantly, Christ. We don't have to allow that evil to destroy us. Last question here. After Jesus had healed him, the people of the city found the man sitting and in his right mind. And that's the coolest aspect of the story to me. I love that line. He was in his right mind. That's what it means to be in your right mind, in a state where evil is no longer controlling you. Jesus made it possible for this man to get there, to return to his right mind. And so now that we understand the essence of this story, what's the secret message? No one is beyond hope. And you could ask your students how they feel this story of a legion could apply to them, apply to us. Do they know of anyone who they might be tempted to conclude was beyond hope of being spiritually healed? And how does the story relate to that situation? Uh, The story of Legion is compelling to me because it's about somebody who seemed to everyone around him to be beyond hope. He was untamable. He's a good representation of the kind of person that we feel has no possibility of ever changing. Somebody who's lost all sense of control. Perhaps Legion is a a good physical representation of addiction. Those times when we feel that there's another force inside us controlling us. There's still that part of us that desires to change, that recognizes the harmful effect of the unclean spirit but we just don't seem to have the power anymore to get rid of it. Things like substance abuse, gambling, pornography. Or we feel that there are other impulses inside us that we just can't seem to get under control. Our temper, perhaps. Dishonesty, greed, selfishness. 
And just like Legion or the pigs, we recognize that those unclean spirits within us are causing us to hurt ourselves or are leading to our own self-destruction. Do we ever feel this way? Do we ever feel that we are too far gone from the path of righteousness to ever expect healing or change? Or is there somebody out there that we love, that we fear is beyond hope of saving? I believe the message of the story of Legion can help us. The truth here, Christ can solve even the most serious of problems. Nobody is beyond hope or his ability to help or change them. To illustrate this truth, I might consider showing the following church-produced inspirational message. It's called The Hope of God's Light. It's a moving story of a modern-day legion, in a sense. A young man who, who felt so lost, so out of control, so hopeless, that he almost came to the point of self-destruction. But something changes him and rescues him. His life is transformed by the power of God. And as you watch the video, look for the things that helped to change him. What made the difference? And there, there are a few of them. Uh, these are the kinds of things that can help us as well, or those that we love, to be healed, to be tamed, or to bring us back to our right mind. And I encourage you to watch the video now for yourselves. Uh, it's very powerful uh, and, and very beautifully filmed, I'll say. And to liken the scriptures. How has Jesus brought peace to you in your most serious of problems? Or what is the most dramatic transformation you've seen Jesus work in somebody's life? And I, I personally have witnessed this transformative power of Jesus Christ many times over in my life. And one particular example that comes to mind was, was a, of a neighbor boy my age who was always in trouble as a youth in my neighborhood. Drugs, immorality, crime. If there was anyone in my neighborhood that you would never expect to change or have any hope of becoming a follower of Christ, it would be him. And I can't tell you the feelings that I had then when years later, after I'd moved from that neighborhood, I'd served my mission and had just graduated from college. And I came home that summer and started attending a singles ward near the place where I had grown up. And at a fast and testimony meeting, I had to do a double take as I saw that young man walking up to the pulpit. And, and I was like, no, it, it couldn't be. It, that, that's not him, is it? Yeah, it, it is. And, and with great wonder and joy, I heard him bear a fervent and faithful testimony to the transformative power of Christ in his life. Jesus's love, Jesus's power had changed him completely. 
And the truth of the matter, then, my friends, is, is that people can change through Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ and his church can transform them. It can put them back into their right mind. Anybody, nobody is beyond hope. People that you would never expect to become people of faith do. Drunks, addicts, criminals, resolute atheists, outcasts, and the despairing all have the ability to be changed. And there are countless stories out there that attest to that fact. Legion is one of them. And so I pray that this story can provide hope for you or for people that you love. And now a similar story, but this time uh, a woman. And a woman that is suffering a very serious problem, but this time not through any fault of her own. And so for an icebreaker, if you're teaching the youth in particular, you could play the classic elementary school game that I knew as Heads Up, Seven Up. But instead of calling it that, I might call the game, Who Touched Me? And here's how it works. Typically, you select seven students to be the choosers, who then come up and stand at the front of the classroom. And the rest of the class closes their eyes and puts their heads down and sticks their thumbs up in the air. Now, if you don't have a very large class, you can have fewer choosers. But you've got to have at least two for this to work. And then those choosers go around the room and they touch the thumb of one person who then puts their thumb down. And then the choosers return to the front of the classroom and everybody opens their eyes. Now those people who had their thumbs touched have to guess which person they think it was that touched them. And if they get it right, then they get to switch places with that person and now they become a chooser. And you could, you could go ahead and play this game for as long as you feel you have time for. And then to transition to the scriptures, you could say, today we'll take a look at a time where Jesus asked that very question, who touched me? Because in this story, there's somebody in a crowd of people who had an amazing thing happen to them when they reached out in faith to touch the Savior. Now, to help your students study and understand the story on a deeper level, you could have them do this correct what's wrong activity. And it's a summary of the story found in Mark chapter 5, verses 24 through 34. But it's got some errors in it. Their assignment is to go through and cross out all the incorrect details and write in the correct information above instead. So you could put this out there as a handout. Or you could just put this slide up on a screen and have them do it that way. So, so here's the summary, and I'll walk you through it now so that you'll be familiar with the answers. As Jesus and his apostles passed through a certain city, the streets were almost empty. Now, that's incorrect. The streets were full of people. 
many people were following and crowding around Jesus. There was a woman in that city who had suffered with an issue of headaches for nearly five years. No, she had suffered with an issue of blood for nearly twelve years. The woman had spent half of all her money searching for a cure and had only managed to alleviate some of the pain. And no, she had spent all of her money searching for a cure and had actually grown worse. But when she heard that Jesus was coming through her city, she thought that if she could only touch his arm, that she would be healed. She thought that if she could only touch his garment or his clothing, that she would be healed. As Jesus passed by, she reached out and just brushed her hand against his arm. No, no she reached out and touched his clothing. She felt her pain slowly begin to diminish, and hours later she would be completely healed. No, she felt that she was immediately healed, right then. Jesus didn't realize that he had healed someone, but looked around and asked, Is there anyone here who needs to be healed? No, no, no. Jesus did realize that he had healed somebody, that virtue had gone out of him. And so he looked around and asked, Who touched me? As he looked around, the woman came to him and fell down at his feet with joy and confidence and told him what she had done. That's mostly correct, but she came with fear and trembling to tell him what she had done. And Jesus said to her, Daughter, my power hath made thee whole. Go in joy and be whole of thy plague. So now Jesus actually said, Daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace, and be whole of thy plague. Now, now that's the correct version of the story. And now that we know it, maybe some discussion questions for your class to consider. In how many different ways was this woman suffering? Which of the following apply? Emotionally, physically, financially, socially, spiritually? Well, let's see. Physically, for certain, she's got the pain and discomfort of this illness that she, she has to deal with constantly. What else? Well, she's, she's got a financial problem now, too, doesn't she? She's poor. She had spent all that she had in trying to be healed, and had suffered many things of many physicians. And it really makes me wonder what that sentence entails. What stories would she have to tell? Strange remedies and treatments? Perhaps quack doctors who are just trying to make a quick buck off of her? Or genuine, good-willed physicians whose treatments just couldn't help her? Now, I know of people like that who have tried everything they can think of and spend loads of money trying to figure out a solution to some hard-to-diagnose medical problem. And just how absolutely frustrating that is. And how long has she suffered from this malady? 
12 years. This, this is a long-term problem. And, and what would that do to a person? Well, what would it do to their, their psyche? I am sure that she would be suffering emotionally and mentally as well. The discouragement, the despair, the frustration. And add to that this disturbing revelation. This condition of hers would have also made her ceremonially unclean. This was a spiritual, a religious problem now, too. The law of Moses was very strict in its rules of cleanliness and purification, and even specifically gives instruction on what to do if a woman had an issue of blood. Now, I won't read through the entire explanation here, but you can read about this rule in Leviticus 15, verses 19 through 30. But just a few parts of it here. And if a woman have an issue, and her issue in her flesh be blood, she shall be put apart seven days, and whosoever toucheth her shall be unclean until the even. Then it goes on to explain that anything she touched would have also been considered unclean. Verse 27, And whosoever toucheth those things shall be unclean, and shall wash his clothes, and bathe himself in water, and be unclean until the even. So I don't believe that rule was meant to be something that would ostracize women, uh, because usually those things would be temporary. But, but this woman has had this issue for 12 years. So she would have been suffering socially as well. She probably would have been treated much like lepers were treated. Nobody would have wanted to touch her or to be close to her. She more than likely would have been a social outcast because of this disease. So she's alone, hurting, poor, distressed, and desperate for help. So personally, I can see evidence that she is suffering in each one of those ways. And that may help us to understand why she's not super eager to go right up to the Savior and ask Him to heal her. So with all that this woman is lacking, with all those other sources out there that have ceased to make her whole, there was one thing that this woman did have in abundance. There was an area that she was not lacking in. Lucky for her, it was the most critical thing that she could possess. This woman had faith in Christ, and she believed that he could heal her. But another question, why do you think she decided to seek healing from the Savior in the way that she did? By, by discreetly trying to touch his clothing as he passed by in the crowd. What do you think was going through her mind as she makes this plan? Why didn't she just go right up and tell the Savior her situation and ask Him to heal her? I believe it was the result of worrying that her touch would make Him unclean. She was worried that her type of problem excluded her from the healing and the peace of Christ. So you you can kind of guess her thought process here. How can I ask this man to heal me if he can't touch me or I him? 
And then she gets an idea. Maybe if I could just touch his clothes and just, just barely touch them, I'll touch just the hem. That would be okay, wouldn't it? And nobody even needs to know. Not even him, perhaps. I'll just reach out, touch a little part of his clothing, and slip away unnoticed. So she formulates her plan. She positions herself to where she knows he's going to be passing by. And as he does, with the crowds swarming around him, she reaches out and just lightly touches the threads of the hem of his robe. And immediately she's healed. She feels it inside her. It worked. She's whole. And what joy and what relief at that. But, next question, how do you imagine she felt when she saw Jesus stop and heard him ask, who touched me? You see, Jesus could sense that his healing power had taken effect on somebody. And so he stops and he asks his question. The apostles, they're incredulous. Uh, There's a giant crowd surrounding him. And they say, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou who touched me? Meaning, what do you mean who touched you? Everybody's touching you. You're in the middle of this crowd. And Jesus is like, No, you don't understand. Somebody touched me with faith. He had sensed a touch that had drawn upon his virtue and his power. He could feel that. Now put yourself in her shoes. Can you imagine how she must have must have been feeling at that moment? She sees him looking around and trying to find who it was. And she thinks, oh no, oh, he knows. Jesus has felt her unclean touch, and now he's searching the crowd for the culprit. I thought I could just do this quietly and anonymously, but I was wrong. And we're actually told how she feels, right? The scriptures say, But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. So we we get the sense that she thinks that she's done something wrong. To her credit, not only was she a woman of great faith, but great humility and honesty as well. She comes to confess what she's done and to apologize. But then, how sweet the Savior's words must have been for her when he reassures, Daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace. Be whole of thy plague. You see, the reason he wanted to find out who it was that had touched him wasn't because he was upset. It was because he wanted to make sure that that person knew something about their healing. Perhaps he was concerned that whoever had touched him might go throughout the rest of their life, thinking that the power that had saved them was in his clothing. That wasn't the case. Jesus did not have a magic robe or priesthood-filled clothing. The power that healed this woman did not lie in the threads of the hem of his garment. 
And so he finds her and he says, thy faith, emphasis on those two words, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace. The power by which you've been healed was your faith and the power of my father's will, but not my clothes. I just wanted you to know that. Be whole. Be at peace. A truth that I would want to stop and highlight here would be when other sources fail, the Savior has the power to make me whole or bring me peace according to my faith and His divine purposes. This woman's story stands as a testament to that principle. And so to liken the Scriptures, are there any issues that you have? Are there any areas of your life where you feel that you are lacking or incomplete? Have you ever been in a similar situation as hers? Have you tried everything else under the sun to try and find a solution to a problem that you have and nothing has seemed to work? Possible areas, uh, your health, your desire to do what's right, your ability to do what's right your finances, your relationships? Do we, do we ever feel that we're lacking in happiness, money, intelligence, fulfillment, love, or spirituality? Have you tried reaching out to Christ in faith yet? And, and what does that look like for us? How does somebody reach out to Christ in our day? You might want to discuss that as a class. And now might be a good time to either sing or watch a performance of the hymn, Where Can I Turn for Peace? Because the message of that hymn perfectly matches the story of this woman with the issue of blood. And I feel can help sink the truth of that story deeper into our hearts. And I have found a beautiful performance of that hymn online. And I'll provide you with the link to it in the video description below. But the questions I would have my students ponder as they listen to it would be, what's your favorite line or thought from this hymn and why? Or ponder a time that you could share with the class when you felt Christ brought you peace and wholeness in a time of need. You may even consider sharing one of your own personal experiences like this. For me, I remember a time when I was a new seminary teacher, and I felt that things weren't going very well for me and my classes. I felt very inadequate in my ability to teach them. I felt I was lacking as a teacher as I compared myself to other teachers, and I felt very discouraged. I decided to reach out to the Savior in prayer and faith and, and an acknowledgement that I couldn't do it on my own. All other sources ceased to make me whole. And I can testify to you that, that the Savior did bring me peace in that situation. And I believe that He's helped me over time to fill in those places where I've lacked. 
now before we leave this story, there is one additional principle that I'd like to point out here. And, and it's in the way that the woman reacts when Christ calls out to find out who touched him. And she runs to him, fearing and trembling, because she feels that she's done something wrong. Do we ever experience similar kinds of feelings when it comes to our actions? Do we ever make decisions that cause us to fear and tremble at the thought that we may have done something wrong in the eyes of God? I'm not talking about sin here or giving into temptation or moral weaknesses in this case. But I do know of individuals whose faith and devotion to doing the right thing is so strong that it may sometimes cause them to worry and fret or fear and tremble that they've done something wrong that would that would disappoint the Savior. And they're unhappy because of it. And for example, when I was a bishop, I would sometimes call people in to offer them a calling. And, and I used to think that every calling that a bishop issued was a divine revelation from God that was meant to be. I don't think that anymore. And don't get me wrong, uh, there are many times when I did feel that the Lord had inspired me to call somebody to a specific position. But, on the other hand, sometimes there were just positions that needed to be filled, and individuals that did not have a calling. And we would reach out to people as a bishopric to see if we could make a good match. And the approach was, there's a need here. Are you able and willing to fill it? And there were times when we just didn't have enough information as a bishopric about that person's situation. And we'd discover that it wasn't a good fit. That there was a legitimate reason not to accept. But I can think of a number of times where I watched faithful members of my ward struggle with that. And they'd say, I've been told never to turn down a calling, but I'm just not sure how I can make this work. Their work schedule, their, their family situation just didn't mesh with the demands of the calling. And I, I, I'd try to reassure them that it was okay and that we understood and that we would consider a different calling more in line with their circumstances. But you could just tell, you could just tell that sometimes they, they felt badly about it guilty. Imagine, what if the Savior had come to visit our ward that next week, and he stood up at the pulpit and said, I hear that somebody turned down a calling from the bishop recently. Who was it? Can you imagine how they would feel? Perhaps they would run forward, fearing and trembling, and confess, it was me. I'm so sorry. I knew I should have accepted it. And how would they feel as Jesus said to them, No, no. The reason I wanted to call on you was to assure you that you've done nothing wrong. You don't need to feel guilty about this. Great is your faith. Go in peace. Another quick example. My father tells the story of a woman who came up to him after one of his classes because she was worried that she had decided to read the New Testament instead of the Book of Mormon at that time. And she said, I know that we're supposed to read the Book of Mormon every day, but I've read it many times and, and I'd really like to focus my full attention and study on the New Testament for a change. 
I've never read it before. So as she was asking my dad if, if he felt that that was okay, was she sinning in this? Now, how do you imagine she would have felt if the Savior had walked into the classroom that day and said, I've heard that there's somebody out there who's decided not to study the Book of Mormon. Who is that? She certainly would have run up to him, fearing and trembling, and confessing, it's me, it's me. I know I shouldn't have done it. I'm so sorry. And I truly imagine that Jesus would look at her and say, daughter, it's okay. This is a good desire. I'm okay with you studying my life and my teachings in the New Testament. You're doing nothing wrong. I just wanted you to know that. Go in peace. Sometimes it's important for us to remember the gracious and loving nature of our Savior when it comes to worries of that kind. And so I testify that Jesus does have the power to bring peace and wholeness to us in times of need. There are a lot of other sources out there that people may turn to in times of trouble and lack. And, and not all those sources are bad or useless. But there is one source of peace and comfort that we can always turn to, that will always help in some way. And that source is Christ. I testify that as we reach out to touch the Savior, that His power can give us guidance in times of uncertainty. He can send somebody to help us. He can provide actual healing through miraculous means. Or at the very least, provide us with a sense of peace and comfort that all will be okay in the end and that we have the strength to endure. There's real power in reaching out to Christ through our prayers, through spending time in His holy house, through seeking help from inspired church leaders, through turning to the scriptures and the words of the living prophets for counsel, or by relying on the love, prayers, and service of our families and congregations. I believe that the love and power of Christ can flow from each of these divine sources of help and provide healing and wholeness. And that we remember that in our times of need is my solemn prayer and hope for all of us. For Matthew chapter 10, I may not do the full treatment here, but allow me just to give you a brief activity-based lesson uh, uh, that can quickly but effectively cover some important principles from this chapter. And this chapter recounts the Savior's call of the Twelve Apostles and His charge for them to take His gospel out into the world. And He gives them instructions on how that's to be done. And that can be very helpful to us as his disciples in that we too are given the same charge to preach his gospel. So it's a great chapter for anyone who aspires to do any form of missionary work in the kingdom. Whether that's full-time missionary work or our work we do as a member missionary. And the way this activity works is I print out a number of different posters with preaching principles on them. And I place them on the walls around the room in various positions. I then divide my class up into two to four teams 
and a representative from each team comes to the front of the classroom where they're given a fly swatter. And as the teacher, I display a verse of scripture up on my screen. Or if I didn't have a projector, I might just call out the verse from chapter 10 and begin reading it out loud. The students with the fly swatters then have the task of running to the principle that they feel best matches the message of that verse and slap it with their fly swatter and leave it there. Their team members back at their desks can feel free to shout out and help direct that person to the correct match as much as they want. But the catch is, is once you've, once you've slapped a principle, you're committed to that one and can't change your mind. So whoever slaps the correct principle first wins a point. Now, if every one of the team representatives has chosen the incorrect poster, you give all of them another chance at once to slap a different poster until the correct answer has been identified. And there are some principles that are included on the posters that don't match any of the verses. They're, they're true principles still, but, but they don't match any from chapter 10. I just feel that makes the game a little more interesting and challenging. So I'll make the posters themselves available for download if you're interested, but I'd recommend that you print them on cardstock because the fly swatters can sometimes rip just regular paper. So here are the answers. And for our purposes here, I'll do them in order. But I recommend that you do them out of order so that your students don't look ahead and anticipate the next answer. Because these principles can basically stand alone. So chapter 10, verse 1. And when he had called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits, to cast them out, and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. The match, then, is remember that God has given you power to help people physically, and spiritually. Jesus gave his witnesses power over all that was unclean, to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. So that would include spiritual, emotional, relational, financial, social, and even physical diseases. Chapter 10, verse 8. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils, Freely ye have received, freely give. The match is, be willing to give freely to anybody the gift of the gospel that you have received. We must remember that God invites all to come unto him. Now, we've been fortunate enough to have been freely blessed with the fruit of the tree of life. And therefore, we must make an effort to give that fruit to others to salt the earth, to let our light so shine, and to do it freely. Chapter 10, verses 9 through 10. Provide neither gold, nor silver, nor brass in your purses, nor scrip for your journey, neither two coats, neither shoes, nor yet staves. For the workman is worthy of his meat. And the matches rely on the Lord and forget your worldly needs and concerns. Now, I, I don't believe that we literally live that instruction in the way that they did back then, uh, just going out without any money or provisions. 
but the principle upon which it's based still holds true in my mind. To do God's work, we're going to need to rely on Him and put our physical and our worldly concerns behind us. And that's particularly true when it comes to full-time missionary work. Our focus centers more on the eternal than the temporal, the spiritual than the material during that time that we serve. We leave our former lives and concerns behind, and we rely on God. Chapter 10, verse 16. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And the match is be cautious and careful, but gentle and non-threatening. I think that's a great way to describe the ideal missionary approach. Be wise, pragmatic, vigilant, study, be prepared for questions, learn the best ways to deal with people, but at the same time, be completely genuine and sincere in your motives. Don't be confrontational, contentious, or combative as you seek to share the gospel. Wise as serpents, harmless as doves. 10.17 But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in their synagogues. The match is expect opposition. It won't be easy. And anyone who's attempted to share the gospel or who's served a full-time mission knows what Jesus is talking about here. There will be challenges. People will persecute, they will ridicule, they will oppose you. The adversary is not going to give up his power over others easily. So don't be surprised when things get tough. It's all a part of the call. Uh, verses 19 through 20. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what you shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what ye shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. And the match is, rely on the Spirit. He will give you the words to say. And the Doctrine and Covenants promise that as long as we were willing to open our mouths, that the Spirit will fill them with the words to say. Doctrine and Covenants 33.8 We just need to demonstrate our faith to call on that power and place ourselves as instruments in God's hands. And I can think of many times in my church callings, my missionary service, and as a teacher, where I felt the Spirit giving me the words to say. I just had to open my mouth. Verse 28, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. The match is, don't be afraid, even of death, only sin. So fear is the tool of the adversary. God works by faith. So there's no reason to fear what man can do. Even if you were to lose your life sharing the gospel, all that would be happening is that you would be getting your transfer to the spirit world a little earlier than you probably would prefer. 
but the state of your soul would be fine. However, if we allow the adversary to defeat us, that can have eternal consequences. Even if you live a long and healthy life, it's just temporary. Eternity is a long time, and sin is the greater tragedy. Verses 29 through 31. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. Meaning, without your father knowing and recognizing it. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore. Ye are of more value than many sparrows. The match is... Remember that the worth of souls is great in the sight of God. And yes, I realize that Jesus is speaking to the apostles and the value of their lives in this case. The principle holds true for all of God's children. These verses are highlighting the worth of souls. If God notices and cares about sparrows that men value so cheaply, They can be sold for a farthing. Then certainly God knows and cares about you. You are of way more value than many sparrows. And so are the people that we try to teach. There is no one out there that is not a beloved son or daughter of our Heavenly Father. There's no one that you can meet that doesn't have the potential to become a God or goddess in the next life. We've got to strive to remember that as we serve. Chapter 10, verse 40. He that receiveth you, receiveth me. And he that receiveth me, receiveth him that sent me. The match is, you are a representative of Jesus Christ and Heavenly Father. And that may be one of the most wonderful things about missionary service. It's one of the most Christ-like things that you can do. For full-time missionaries, there is something beautiful about the name tag that we wear. Nowhere on that tag do we find our own names. People didn't call me Ben on my mission. I was Elder Wilcox for two years. There are three names on that name tag, though, that represent things that we do represent as we serve. What are they? We represent our family because we have our family name on there, the church, and Jesus Christ. We bear his name on our hearts. And how refreshing it is to not be focused on ourselves during that service, but completely on others. And that's what Christ spent his life doing. And if we're meant to become even as he is, and to receive his image in our countenances, And sharing the gospel is one of the greatest ways we can do that. Those that receive us are actually receiving him. We are representatives of Jesus Christ. What a privilege. And now we're going to add just one more principle from chapter 11. Verse 1. And it came to pass that when Jesus had made an end of commanding his twelve disciples... He departed thence to teach and to preach in their cities. And the match is, you're not working alone. 
Christ will work with you. And you'll notice in this verse that Jesus doesn't just send his apostles out to teach the gospel while he sits back and watches. He goes out and works too. He works with us, side by side. So after the game, I'd invite my students to look around the room at the posters that we just highlighted and to write in their journal or on a piece of paper their answer to the following question. Which instruction do you feel was the most important for you to hear today? And why? And to conclude, I just want to point out some of the blessings that the Lord promises those who seek to preach the gospel to others. In 10.22, he promises that we will be saved. In verse 32, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. And then verse 39, He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. So, so there you have it. According to that last verse, it's actually a good thing to be a loser. Right? If we give up the concerns and priorities of our temporal lives in the service of God, then we will gain a far better life in the world to come. Eternal life. So let's go out and share the gospel with as many as we can, trying to keep these principles, uh, these very, very helpful instructions in mind as we do. And that's going to do it for us this week, my friends. Thank you for taking this time with me. Uh, those of you that are teachers, if you'd like access to the resources that I have available, you can go to teachingwithpower.com and you'll find links to those resources. Uh, you can also check the video description below the video. Sometimes you have to click the little show more button. But I know I had a lot of links and uh, videos uh, this week. So you'll find those links in that video description. If you enjoyed or you felt like uh, this lesson helped in any way, I'd encourage you to uh, subscribe if you haven't. Uh, hit the like button or, or share on social media uh, with somebody that you feel it could also help. Thank you so much for watching, everybody. Now get out there and teach with power.